morning. If you don't know me, my name is Josh. I am one of the pastors here, and I get to bring God's word to you this morning. So we will be in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. So John 17, 6 through 19. If you want to use the Pew Bible, we will be on page 903. So that's page 903 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, take that home, use it. May it be a blessing to you as you read it and get to know our great God. So John 17, 6 through 19. And if you were here with us two weeks ago, I I, uh, started preaching through this uh, prayer of Jesus. And uh, we're going to see this, if you want to say, the second part to this famous prayer. It's often been called the high priestly prayer or a prayer of consecration sometimes also called the other Lord's Prayer. And so Christ, um, he's praying this prayer immediately after the farewell discourse, which we uh, read in John 14 through 16. And it's also the longest recorded prayer of Christ. So it gives us a, a glimpse into the heart of Christ. And it's brought joy, great joy, and delight to believers for thousands of years. And so before we dive in, I'd like to pray for us. Father, we come to you now, and we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth in this passage. Give us hearts to receive it with eagerness, and give us wills that are bent towards obeying your word. We thank you for it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, at the end of someone's life, a lot of times family and friends will gather around their bedside if you get forewarning that um, someone's near the end of their life. And what happens? Usually the, the family and the friends will say some kind words, some remembrances of that person to just delight in God's gift of, of giving that person to you for a number of years and rejoicing in God's goodness. And a lot of times those people will pray for the dying person. And I believe that's good and that's right. In fact, I've done that for members of this church before. But in our passage today, we find something just a little different. We do find Jesus just hours before his death. And people are gathered around him. The disciples are with him. But instead of them praying for Christ, for Jesus, he prays for them. And so we jump into the middle of this prayer as uh, two weeks ago we saw Jesus prays for glory. But glory that not would would end on himself, but that he might glorify God. And today we're going to see Christ turn his attention on the disciples. So if you would follow along as I read from John 17, we'll start in verse 6. After... I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave to me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. As we dive into this passage, we're going to answer two main questions. The first is, who does Jesus pray for? And we're going to see who he prays for and how they're described in verses 6 through the first part of verse 11. And then we're going to see how Jesus answers the question, who does Jesus pray for? And that will be in the last part of verse 11 through verse 19. And even with that, we're going to see Jesus prays for their protection and he prays for their sanctification. So let's first answer the question, who does Jesus pray for? So Jesus' attention, he turns from verses five, 1 through 5 from being on himself, asking God, God the Father to glorify him, to now turning his attentions on the, the disciples. But notice, notice how they're described. Verse 6, he says, I've manifested your name to the people who you gave to me out of the world. So this manifested your name. Jesus has manifested God's name. That is, his name is, is, is making evident God's character. He's revealed God to these people. So to who are these? It's, well, it goes on and it, it's whom the Father has given him. And then verse 6 gives us even more. Well, yours they were, you gave them to me. So Christ has made known who the Father is to these people. They belong to God and then they were given to Christ. But then it says, they have kept your word. So what, it, what does it mean that they've kept Christ's word? Well, Jesus goes on to tell us in verse 7 and 8. He says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know them in truth, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So he continues to describe these people. It's, it's these disciples that Christ has revealed who God is. He's made him known, and they keep his word. They've received him. They've known him. But, but what, it, what it exactly does it mean that they've kept his word? Because we know the disciples, they were far from perfect. They, they were far from fulfilling everything Jesus told them all the time. And so this idea of 
they've kept your word. I don't think it has to do with they've obeyed every little thing Jesus has said. But they've received Christ. They've received the gospel, the truth, the essential truths that we must believe in. They've received it. They believe that Christ is the only means of salvation and that he's sent by the Father. And then Jesus even clues us in even more. Who is this prayer for? Verse 9. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. So Jesus knows he's about to depart. He's about to leave. And he says, I'm, I'm not praying for everyone in general. I'm not praying for this entire world. Although we do know later in this chapter, he does pray for others outside the disciples and who come to faith in him. Or, 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 but right now he's, he's specifically praying for the disciples. He's praying for the disciples, which sounds quite harsh, maybe even cold. Right? Why would he not be praying for the world? Well, you and I, in fact, pray very specifically for people. We don't always, we're just not quite this explicit. Right? Jesus says, I'm praying for my disciples, not for the entire world right now. We do this in our regular, everyday prayer life. We call people by name. We pray for them. We pray for our children. We pray for family and friends. We, in fact, do this even in the service. Right? The elders, we read this, the, the word. And then we pray. And who are we primarily praying for at that time? For the church. We're asking God to forgive us for ways that we have not faithfully followed him. We're asking him for, for us to be faithful in knowing him and, and following him. We ask God to help us rejoice in him. And so even in that way, we are trying to lead the church in praying, making sure we're praying for one another, for Christ's followers. And even though it sounds harsh right now as Jesus is getting ready to leave, praying specifically for his followers, it actually ought to bring us great comfort. It ought to bring great delight in us because he's concerned for his disciples. As he's getting ready to leave, he's praying for them. And I think even by extension, all who believe in him. He's praying for them because he loves them. He cares about them. He's interceding for us, Christian, because he loves you. And so let this simple but true fact bring you great joy that your Savior, even though he is not physically present with you, still intercedes on your behalf. So this week, if you get bad news from the doctor, you can take comfort that Christ prays for you. If you don't get the account, the new account at work and the deal falls through, you can take comfort. You can be steadfast that Christ loves you. If difficulty comes your way this week, you can know that Christ is praying for you. Your soul 
can be buoyed by the love of Christ, knowing that he still intercedes for his people. So we should love this. We should cherish this, that we aren't left alone, that we have one pleading before the Father for us even now. And so Christ prays for his disciples. He prays for those who belong to him. But he says, Father, I'm turning them back over to you. They were yours. You gave them to me. And now as I prepare to depart this world, I'm giving them back to you. So Christ prays for his disciples. But now let us consider our second question. What does Jesus pray for? What does Jesus pray for? Let's read beginning in verse 11, the middle part of that verse. Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus here, he's praying for protection. He's praying for protection for his disciples. Right? He says, verse 12, he says, While I was with them, I kept them, I've guarded them. But now that I'm leaving, Father, I want you to keep them. I'm giving them back to you. And what is he protecting them from? What is he praying that the Father would protect them from? I think it's, he's praying that God would protect them from the world. The world, according to, to John anyways, is anything that's opposed to God and his people. And so what type of protection is Jesus praying for? That also is really important. What is Jesus, when he asks God the Father to protect his people, his disciples, what is he praying protection from? Well, I think it's two things. One, I think he's praying, Father, preserve their faith. Don't let them fall away. Jesus, while he was with them, has protected them. He's kept them. He's guarded them. Now Jesus is calling on the Father to do the same thing. While I'm not with them, Father, when I return to you, keep them. But what about this one that's the son of destruction? Right? Has Jesus failed? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 12. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is referring to Judas. That although he was labeled one of the disciples, he never actually belonged to Christ. He followed Jesus around. He was in the inner circle. But Judas never belonged to Christ. And even as was revealed here in this passage, it's according to, to Scripture. It wasn't a surprise to Jesus. It wasn't a surprise to God the Father. You could read it. When it was prophesied from Psalm 41, 9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who I ate my bread, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So God knew this was coming. This wasn't a surprise to Christ that Judas never actually belonged to him. Jesus has never lost any one of his sheep. Not one. 
So this ought to bring you great comfort that Jesus, if you are in Christ, if you've been given from the Father to Christ, has never lost a single soul and never lost a single sheep. So what does this mean for us? How does this affect us even just daily? Well, I think verse 13 is extremely helpful. Jesus says, but now I'm coming to you. That is, I'm coming to you, Father. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is asking the Father to keep his disciples in the faith, to keep you in the faith, that you would not be lost, that that you wouldn't be a Judas. And that by knowing that you are in Christ, that can, can hold you fast, that you are kept by God. And so let me ask you, does that truth, bring you joy? How are you even rejoicing in Christ this morning? Are you full of joy today because sin, your sin has been forgiven and you stand before a holy God, righteous in Christ? How full is your joy even right now? And I get it. You might, you might if you were to honestly answer that, would say, My joy is quite lacking. My joy is actually a little bit cold this morning. Let me first say that can be the case sometimes. We can struggle as life has its way of wearing us down. But Christian, think on this. Listen to this. That you making it to heaven is not dependent on you. If you being with God in heaven was dependent on you, that would actually be joy robbing and stealing. And so the omnipotent, omniscient God with all the resources of heaven will not ever lose you. Jesus says protect them, keep them, hold them fast. He protects you. He sees you into his presence where we might even one day with great joy hear, welcome, my good and faithful servant. So nothing can take you from the Father. But I think the second way this protection that Jesus has in mind here is when he prays protection over his disciples is protection from Satan, protection from evil. Follow along as I read verses 14 through 16. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus is asking the Father, protect them. Protect the disciples from the evil one. So why? Verse 14 tells us, right? It's because the world's hated them. They're still in the world, and it hates them. It hates them because they aren't like the world. They're different. So insofar as our ways are different than the world's, Christian, you will be hated. You will be disliked. You will be thrown onto the bus. And so we're not to withdraw from the world because we actually have a message of salvation. We're not to conform to the world because we want to represent Christ well. We want to make him known 
to the world. And yet I feel like maybe the words of C.S. Lewis from Screwtape Letters might describe us more faithfully or more accurately than we would like to admit at times. So if you know anything about it, the senior devil Screwtape has an apprentice, Wormwood, that he speaks to. And C.S. Lewis in this book says, The enemy, this is, this is, uh, sorry, this is Screwtape speaking to Wormwood. The enemy has guarded him. He's guarded him from you through the first great wave of temptations. But if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself of your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful passions and youthful hopes, the quiet despair of ever-overcoming chronic temptations, with which we have again and again defeated them, all of this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. Screwtape saying to Wormwood, over time we're going to wear them down. We're going to make it more difficult for them to follow Jesus. We're going to, through circumstances and temptation, wear them out. Some of you perhaps feel this well. You wonder, will I ever overcome this sin, this temptation? To which I want to say yes. Don't give in. When you say, I will never overcome this sin, whatever it is, you're doubting the power of God in salvation. And so even though we may grow tired and weary, we cannot give up. We must struggle against sin by leaning on Christ. And ask God, plead with him, God, kill this appetite for sin within me and give me a hunger for righteousness. Give me a hunger for you. So even though adversity and trial and temptation, they present us great danger. Screwtape goes on to say that there's actually another danger that might perhaps be even greater. He says to Wormwood, if the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels, his finding his pla- he, feels he is finding his place in it. While really, it's finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of work, build him up in a sense of really being at home in earth, which is just what we want. So even through trial and adversity and temptation, the world is beating at us, But then, if that's not enough, what if success comes our way? What if success beckons us away from God, trusting in ourselves, or or, or even causes us to be prone towards pride? Where we think time, we wouldn't say this, but we act like time ought to serve us. Or money is to be used the way that I want it to be used. Or my home and my family ought to serve me. Or my marriage. It's all about my desires. I wonder if that creeps in at times. 
beckoning us away from Christ. I wonder if successes in our country and individual successes in our own lives are slowly wooing us from God, wooing us towards pride and self-sufficiency. But also, we have to be aware of this as a church. Because if I'm being honest with us, from the outside, we're a very successful church, if you want to use that word. So I pray it's never true of us that we are wooed away from Christ as a church. Our budget for eight years, each year consistently, year after year, we've been in a significant surplus. Church planting, right? We've celebrated planting Lovettsville Baptist Church, or we're still, despite planting a church, we're growing, I think, by God's grace. We had 42 people in the new members class last week wanting to know more about what is Hamilton Baptist Church. What's it look like to be a part of this body? And so we are thankful for these things. These are all reasons to give all glory to Christ for his kindness to us. But we can't let it woo us away from deep trust in God. So success, it's an opportunity to ask God to glorify him through us. And with humility, you say, God, would you continue to use us for your glory? And so Jesus prays for his disciples. He asks the Father to protect them. Keep them in the faith. Protect them from Satan and the world. But he also prays for protection. If you notice, it's for the purpose of unity. So if you were to look at the state of the Christian church today, I think you might wonder, why did Jesus pray for protection from the world? Why didn't he pray, Father, keep my people unified? Protect them from one another, right? Some of us in the Christian world are lashing out on social media, lashing out and causing divisions. And what do you think the onlooking world sees? Not unity. I wonder if some of you are involved in that. And just like the pursuit of righteousness isn't actually pursuing righteousness, it's similar with unity. Right? How do you want to grow in righteousness? Well, it's you pursue Christ. And as you pursue him, he forms you into the image of Christ. And so as we want to be a unified church, and if the church at large wants to be unified, we don't pursue unity by compromise. We pursue unity through Jesus. So the solution is look at Christ. You could even kind of learn from rowers, right? They don't, each person doesn't row as vigorously and as fastly and with as much power as they possibly can. No, they, they have to row in sync. They don't, in fact, even look at where they're going. Their back is to the finish line, the thing they're aiming for, going for. So what do they do? They simply listen to the voice of the coxswain, follow his commands, do what he says. So the rower's success is bound up in listening to and looking to their coxswain to follow his lead. And as each one individually does that, they cross the finish line in unity. 
So believers, we're protected by God as we look to him and as we listen to him. And our unity will come about as we look to Jesus. I think if we do this, then we'll be less prone to trying to win arguments and make a point. We'll be less prone to talking about our political persuasions and forcing them on people, but we'd actually be filled with love. We'd be filled with humility that results from a closeness with Christ. We'd be quick to listen and slow to speak. And and we would promote biblical ideas with love, with a tone of persuasion instead of condescension. And so as we pursue Christ, he will bring about unity within the church at large. And I trust, pray, keep unity here in this body. So Christ prays for protection. The second thing he prays for is for sanctification. Follow along as I read verses 17 through 19. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is asking the Father, right? Sanctify his disciples. That's a big word, church word for uh, saying he set them apart. Father, set them apart. Put them aside to be used by you. So how does that happen? Well, Jesus even tells us there. Sanctify them how? It's in truth. It's in the word. So he, he can't be more clear. Right? How is it that you and I are set apart to be used by God? We do it by pursuing him through the word. Seek him. What we know is true of him. That our lives might adorn the gospel that we preach. That we would devote ourselves to the word. That's why every Sunday we read the word. We pray the word. We sing the word. We preach the word. We want what what transforms and shapes this church. To be God using his word through the application of his spirit. That changes us into the image of Christ. So that's what we want. So the more the word permeates us deep within our souls, in our hearts, it will transform us. That we would know Christ and that we would love Christ and cherish him. And it's the word that sanctifies, transforms us. But then look at verses 18 and 19 with me. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus calls on the Father to sanctify his disciples. Jesus says, I'm consecrating myself. I'm setting myself apart. And what what does he set himself apart for? It's for his mission. That is going to the cross to die, to live a perfect life, die on the cross and be raised from the grave. That all who would believe in him may have eternal life in Jesus. And this prayer of sanctification as he prays and says, Father, set them apart that they might be used by you as they seek you through truth and the word. Well, we see the purpose. 
the purpose of mission. Christ set himself apart to save others. Now God's people are to be set apart by God that what? That they might then proclaim the gospel. As Christ was sent out, so we are sent into the world. We're not set apart to live in our own Christian ghettos. Where we don't ever interact with non-believers. We're to be in the world. Not conform to the world. But we're to be in it. We're to reflect Christ to it. We're to declare the gospel that it would be ever quick to come out of our mouths when we speak at every opportunity that we have. And so we're to be in it, but not of it. And so Christian, you and I are here. In fact, Christ prays that we would be quick to share the gospel, to make disciples and glorify him. So Jesus, he prays for his disciples. He prays for their protection. Protection that they'd be kept by the Father, that they'd be protected from Satan. He prays for their sanctification, that they'd be set apart by the Father, and that they would be distinct from the world as they proclaim the gospel, that others might come to know Jesus. And so may God protect HBC. May God sanctify HBC. May God use us to declare the gospel, and that all glory would be to God. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would you would accomplish what our Savior has prayed for us. That you would protect us. You would keep us. That you would usher us into your presence where we might find the greatest of all delights we could ever imagine. That you would protect us from the evil one while we remain here on this earth. And that you would sanctify us. That you would set us apart. That we would, in fact, be distinct and not see this world as our home, but in fact, that we would see ourselves as sojourners that have the the distinct privilege of reflecting you, declaring you to the lost. Help us in that. And may all glory be to your name. Amen. Let's stand as we join in singing.